As we come under God's word together and consider his word, let's just say a word of prayer. And I want to pray from Psalm 119. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would deal with us, your servants, bountifully, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I must say, I have been through King City a few times before. I know you say you're Sovereign Grace in Toronto, but it's it's a bit of a stretch, I think, King City. And I have to say, my memories of King City are a bit marred by an experience I had leaving King City on King Road there, just past uh, Kiel, I think it is, where it looks like a four-lane highway, and you, you you just put her into third gear, fourth gear, and then there's a cop standing right there. I don't know. It's 50 there. Has anyone been caught there before? Am I the only one? Yeah, okay. So, ooh, okay. And I wasn't the only one. I went around the corner, and there's about five or six cop cars, and the whole street is lined with people. So, anyhow, that went on my record. 82 in a 50. He knocked it down. We'll be considering God's steadfast love, his grace and mercy this morning. So I experienced a bit of that that day. I know Tim because he's my mentor. A few years ago, when I started at Westminster Chapel, I actually never planned to be a pastor. That wasn't kind of in view for me. I was studying. I thought I would be an academic, a professor somewhere, teaching theology and writing books on obscure commentaries from the early church, written in Latin and those kinds of things. But I, was also, I also started to teach when I was at St. Michael's at U of T there. And I found I had a real passion for teaching. I wanted to teach. And a very strange thing kept recurring in the student evaluations that I was getting. A lot of them would comment on who I was as a person. They would say things like, oh, David's so caring. He's very pastoral, these kinds of things. And normally these aren't the kinds of things that students say about their professors. And so that kind of struck me. I thought, okay, that's nice. It's nice to hear that. And over the years, Joe Boot actually, when he flew from England, lived in Stouffville of all places. He moved there because he knew Charles Price, and Charles Price lived in Stouffville. So Joe, Joe and Jenny thought, okay, let's move to Stouffville. Happened to move just up the street from us. So we got to know uh, Joe and Jenny and became friends, and Joe knew I was into theology and those kinds of things. So we got to know each other a bit there. And over the course of time, he had a vision to plant a church in Toronto, start the Ezra Institute, as we've heard about. And he and I would get together for coffee once in a while and talk about that. And he would often invite me to, you know, you really need to be part of the plant when it happens. You really need to be part of the Ezra Institute when it happens. And I, was, I really felt called to stay at the church we were at. And it's not that we were happy there. It was actually a real time of testing for us and a real time of long-suffering, exercising our patience endurance. But we really sense no God's calling us to stay here. And Joe planted Westminster Chapel in 2008. And every few months we'd have coffee and he'd give us an update on what was going on. And then he would say, are you guys coming? (laughs) I'd say, no, no. Summer of 2009, we had coffee at Starbucks and he said, I want you to come and you can be on staff part-time. And my immediate reaction wasn't no. And that really kind of, I thought, oh, what's going on here? And Megan and I prayed about it for a while. She was pregnant at the time with our oldest, Samuel. And we, I really sensed God just saying, try it out. It's part-time. Just, just try it out. 
So I did. I started to pastor while I was finishing my PhD, and I realized this is precisely where God's been calling me all along. I knew it right away. This is, this is exactly what God wants me to do. It, it would, I never dreamed of ever preaching. It never occurred to me. I mean, it's even a bit odd, I find, now that I'm here at another church preaching, of all things. But it was clear this is where God had been calling me, and I started full-time there, 2010, January. And I really didn't feel up to it. And I told Joe, I said, I, I really need a mentor. Who, who do you recommend? Who can I go to? I said, I'm a young pastor, a very young pastor. I didn't go through seminary like many pastors have gone through. And I don't know what I don't know, basically. And he recommended that I meet with Tim. So for the last few years, I've been meeting with Tim every couple of months. And I just said to Tim the first time we met, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what to expect as a pastor. And he's been a great source of encouragement to me, a great source of wisdom. I know I don't need to tell you this. So you've experienced that. But it's, uh, it's a great privilege, I think, to share a pulpit with Tim now. I feel very honored to be here. And over the next four weeks, I want to look at four different psalms. So we'll spend the next four weeks in the psalms. Today we consider Psalm 63. Next week we'll consider Psalm 111. The week after that, Psalm 112. Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 go together. Here's a fancy word from church history. They're diptychs. Diptychs. You can look that up, but they go side by side. So we'll look at those in successive weeks. And then I actually haven't decided the fourth psalm yet. I think it will probably be Psalm, uh, psalm 19. Psalm 19, but it may be Psalm 16. So we'll see. Just turn that up, 19 upside down, Psalm 16. So we'll see. I think it'll be Psalm 19. So this morning we have before us Psalm 63. John Calvin is commentarying the Psalms. He begins with an introduction to the Psalms, and that's where we get, albeit a little glimpse, at least a glimpse of his autobiography. Calvin doesn't say much about himself. He doesn't say much about his life, but he does in his introduction to the Psalms. And the reason I think he chooses that place, of all places, to talk about his spiritual life, to give his testimony, is because Calvin saw in the Psalms a mirror. And when we read the Psalms, when we pray the Psalms there, what we're actually doing is looking into a mirror, and the Psalms reveal our true selves. It's it's almost a a mirror for the soul. And we look into the, the Psalms, and we see there revealed to us the nature of our soul. We discover there all of, the, uh, all of our weaknesses, all of our failures, all of our sin. That's why we have many penitential psalms. One of the church fathers, Augustine, uh, were told by his early biographer that when he was dying in bed, he had somebody come and put all of the penitential psalms in his room, and he, and he died praying these prayers of repentance. Think of Psalm 51, a famous prayer of repentance. Augustine died praying these prayers. And the psalms reveal our frailty. They reveal our sin. And they give us the words of repentance. We see our weakness there. We see our fallenness, our sin. And we're given words of repentance. We're taught how to repent, how to pray. The Psalms are also deeply theological. They have a lot to teach us about God. God is revealed in the Psalms. Yes, we, fallen man, are revealed in the Psalms, but so is God. God is highly exalted. He's magnified. He's lifted up in the Psalms. His character, his attributes. The Psalms celebrate his steadfast love and mercy his justice, justice, his holiness. The Psalms recount the mighty, his mighty acts in history. So they're theological. We find God in the Psalms. The Psalms are also song, uh, songs. They're not just Psalms, they're songs. They're to be sung. Many of the Psalms we have in the superscription at the top there, to the choir master. So they're meant to be sung. This, the Psalms teach us not only how to pray, they teach us how to sing, 
how to worship God. And uh, even in the Reformation, Calvin and others took this so strictly, we should only sing the Psalms. We should only sing the Psalms in, in church. So they teach us how to pray, they teach us how to sing, they teach us theology. I'm using this word again and again, teach. And the Psalms are, in a, in a sense, Torah. That's the Hebrew word for the law. It means instruction. And the Psalms teach us. They're didactic. We learn from them. They teach us. Every time we uh, read a psalm, we're being taught. It teaches us how to pray. It teaches us how to praise. It teaches us how to repent. It teaches us about God. So they're, they're Torah, they're instruction. And you may have noticed this if you read through the Psalms. They're divided up into five books. You'll see that, book one, book two, book three. I've been reading through the Psalms, praying through the Psalms. Recently I started into book three. It starts in Psalm 73. This morning at Westminster Chapel, I preached on Psalm 75, because that's where I was. A psalm about God's wrath and judgment. So I was preaching wrath and judgment. You'll be glad you're here this afternoon. You weren't there this morning. But there are five books. And when we think five books, we think, oh, the five books of Moses. That's right. The psalms mirror the law. And that's significant. Our praise, our worship, our prayer, it's, it, it's, uh, it follows, it's... Uh, it's guided by, it's in obedience and conformity to God's law. So we've got the five books of the Psalms, the five books of Moses. And the Psalms give us God's promises. Psalm 63 is, is, a, is a psalm full of God's promise. It's a psalm full of hope. The Psalms give us promises. Martin Luther says that whenever he's praying through the Psalms, he's always, he says he's shaking the Psalms. He shakes them like a tree. God's promises are like fruit. When you read the Bible, when you read the Psalms, shake the Psalms for the promises. Shake them until the fruit drops down. That means you go to God in a sense. Spurgeon said this, always go to God armed with his own promises when you pray to him, when you appeal to him, cry out to him. Speak his promises. Claim his promises. Shake the trees until the fruit of the promises come down. Psalm 63 is a psalm full of promises. It's a song of hope. It's a song of trust. It calls on us to trust in God, to put our faith in God. Again, Charles Purgeon said that of this psalm, I know of no time and no season in which Psalm 63 would sound unsuitable from a believing tongue. This is a psalm to be sung and prayed at any time. A psalm for all, all seasons, if you will. In fact, one of the church fathers, John Chrysostom, reports, he's just writing this kind of offhandedly, but he says it was the practice of the early church for early Christian believers to pray this psalm every morning. When you wake up, pray Psalm 63. So we begin our day grounded in God's promises. We begin our day grounded in this word of confidence and trust. So it is a psalm for every day. It's a psalm for all seasons. But in particular, it's a psalm for those who find themselves in the situation that David found himself in this psalm. David says... He was in a dry and weary land. O oh God, you are my God, and I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And actually, the way the psalm begins, just one letter, O, oh, O oh God, you are my God, that's actually a literary marker that tells us what kind of a psalm it is. And believe it or not, the fact that it begins with O, oh, O oh God, means it's a psalm of lament. David is lamenting. He's in the wilderness. He's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. But notice how quickly there's a transition in the psalm. 
It doesn't, it, the, the whole thing is not a, a lament. It begins with a lament. It's a song, a, a psalm of lament. But very quickly, there's a shift. Very quickly, it changes. Very quickly, David finds himself in the sanctuary. He finds himself at a feast. There's a table set with rich foods. He finds himself under the refuge of God's wings. He finds himself secure in God's right hand. Your right hand upholds me. So yes, it's a psalm of lament, but very quickly there's a transition. This is a psalm that uh, speeds up. You know, it's like a Porsche 911 G2. Zero to 60 in, what is it, 3.9 minutes, seconds, I think. <laughs> Get a speaking ticket on King Road there. Very quickly, a lament, but very quickly it turns to a psalm of rejoicing, singing with praise, celebrating God's steadfast love and faithfulness. So we need, let's go through the psalm. We'll keep that in mind, that this is a path, the psalm sets before us a path. Very quickly, we find our feet on solid ground. Yes, we're in a dry and weary land, but very quickly we have before us a table set with rich food. We're under God's wings. We're in the security of his right hand. But it begins with the superscription, actually. That little bit at the top there, where, where I think in my Bible it's all capital letters. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is actually part of the original biblical text. This isn't something that the ESV translators or some other group added. This is part of the biblical text. It's part of God's word. It's very important. Many of the Psalms have superscriptions, and those superscriptions, superscription, it's written up there on top of the Psalm, that tells us the historical setting of the Psalm. And we need to remember this too. The Psalms just aren't floating about out there. And these aren't just wonderful poems that we read. They're anchored, they're grounded in history. This Psalm is anchored and grounded in history. It's anchored and grounded in David's own life. He says he was in the wilderness of Judah. That's when he wrote this Psalm. We can read through the story of David's life in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and we can locate this Psalm. When did it happen? When did, when did David write this Psalm? When was he in the wilderness of Judah? And uh, most scholars will say that David wrote this psalm when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. One of David's sons, Absalom, led a rebellion. David was uh, temporarily kicked out of Jerusalem, kicked out of his throne. He went and sought refuge in the wilderness of Judah. And this is the historical context for Psalm 63. And when we read through the life of David, read through First and Second Samuel, we'll see there that there's three main stages. There's three main parts to his life. The first part is actually the longest. It begins in First Samuel 16, where he's anointed by the prophet Samuel. Next chapter, Psalm 17, is David and Goliath. And then we have this long period of waiting. David's been anointed by a king. And Saul, the, the narrative makes clear, is a bad king. He's a, he disobeys God. He hasn't submitted to the, the anointing of God's spirit as David had. Yet David waits. And in fact, David is pursued by Saul many times. David flees Saul. He's persecuted by Saul. But he waits. He doesn't try and take the throne by his own power. He waits. He waits. It's a time of patience. Many of the Psalms are written in this period. These Psalms counsel patience, counsel waiting on God. And that takes us all the way from... 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel chapter 1. The whole second half of, the, of 1 Samuel is David waiting to take the throne. But then he does take the throne, 2 Samuel chapter 1. And the first 10 chapters are the high point. This is the period of ascendancy. 
David is reigning over Israel. It's a period of blessing for Israel. It's a period of growth, a period of prosperity. David rules according to God's word. He's a faithful servant of God. He rules his people according to God's law. It's a time of blessing for Israel. Then we have the third section. It begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is a story I think many of us are familiar with. Israel and uh, the fighting men of Israel, the armies are out at war. David, the king, should be with them, should be leading them into battle, but he's not. He stays at home. He's lounging about in his palace. I think it says something uh, in 1 Samuel 11 there about how it's late in the morning and he's just sort of woken up. You know, he's sleeping in. He's lazy. And he looks out over his balcony and he sees Bathsheba. And he takes Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba happens to be closely related to two of David's best friends. David has 30 mighty men in his army. These are his closest associates and allies. These are his closest friends. And Bathsheba is the daughter of one of them, the daughter of Eliam, and she's the husband of another one of these men, Uriah the Hittite. The Hittite, a convert to the faith of Israel. One of David's best friends. He takes the daughter of one of his best friends, the wife of one of his best friends, and uh, it's pretty clear if you're reading the text that, that uh, Bathsheba is coerced. This is a sexual assault that's taken place. He takes her into the palace. Who's going to resist the king and all of his guards? David sends guards to pick her up. And she gets pregnant. So what's David to do? He has to cover up his tracks. Clearly it wasn't Uriah because Uriah is off fighting in battle. So he calls Uriah back to Jerusalem. And he throws a party and says, okay, go home to your wife. Uriah doesn't do it. So then he tries to get Uriah to drink lots. You know, drink, let's go, come on. He keeps filling up his glass of wine to send him home. Uriah won't do it. He sleeps in the doorway of his house. He won't go, he won't go in and lie with his wife. So David's plan, his plot, is foiled. It's very interesting what Uriah says to David. He says to the king, How can I go and lie with my wife when the ark of God and the men of Israel are intense on the battlefield. Uriah is a man of integrity. He's a man of righteousness and justice. While his, uh, while his friends, while, his, while, while the army of God, while the ark of God, while God himself is on the battlefield fighting God's enemies, how can he go in and lie with his wife? He won't do it. But of course, this is a rebuke to David. David should have been out there with the troops. He should have been leading the, the armies of Israel into battle. So Uriah rebukes David. And David's, David's plot, his plan for Uriah to impregnate his wife is foiled. So what does David do? He kills Uriah. He, he actually gives a notice. He puts it right in Uriah's own hands. He sends Uriah back to the front. Uriah hands the notice to the general. The notice says, send the forces in, then draw back and leave Uriah on the battlefield. We all know what's going to happen. Uriah gets killed. David puts the very notice, Uriah's own death sentence, right in his own hands and has him deliver. I mean, this is treachery of the worst sort. David has committed two crimes here. He's, he's disobeyed God's law, two Ten Commandments on two fronts. He's committed adultery, first-degree murder. Now, when David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, he knows right away what his fate ought to be. David confronts 
or Nathan confronts David, that famous parable of the man and his little sheep. As soon as David hears the rebuke of the prophet, he realizes that he deserves death. If you read through the Old Testament law very carefully, it's very clear that there's no sacrifice for the forgiveness of these two sins. These are called high-handed sins. There's no sacrifice for the forgiveness of adultery. There's no sacrifice for the forgiveness of first-degree murder. David is, is doubly damned for these two sins, and he knows it. All he can do is go before God and plead for mercy. And this is the context of Psalm 51, one of the famous psalms of repentance. To the choir master, interestingly enough, this is a song. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And David pours out his heart to God, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David throws himself at God's mercy. He appeals to God's steadfast love. Notice that. He appeals to his steadfast love. And God has mercy on him. He won't be put to death. However, Nathan the prophet warns David. He actually announces to David, the sword will fall upon your household. And we read through the rest of the story of David's life from 2 Samuel chapter 11 onwards. And just as there was the ascendancy in the time of blessing, so now there's the, the fall of David and the fall of David's household. And immediately, the sin of David is repeated by his sons. His son Amnon wants his half-sister, so he takes her, just as David had taken Bathsheba. Absalom, furious about what Amnon did to his sister, murders Amnon. Right away, David's two sons imitate his sin, adultery and first-degree murder. So we see the sword falls on the house of David. And shortly after that, Absalom, we're told he's a very handsome man. He's got uh, nice hair, apparently. And Absalom starts to hang out around the city gates. And these are the gates where people would meet for, uh, for justice. This was where the law court happened. You would go to the elders and you would, their cases would be tried. Uh, appeals would be made. And Absalom starts to hang around there and he's, he's acting as a judge. And he's giving people favorable judgments. They know if they go to Absalom, he's going to give you what you want. Go to Absalom. And he starts to win the favor of the people. And eventually, so many people love Absalom. He's so popular that he realizes now's the time to, to pounce on my father. Now's the time to kick him out of the throne. I can be king now. And this is what he does. Absalom leads a rebellion against David. And David is forced out of Jerusalem. He has to leave the palace. And he has to go down... He goes down. It's actually a very moving account. David and a few close, loyal friends, some of the priests go down the Kidron Valley. They've got the ark with them. And the priests want to carry it on. And David says, no, leave the ark in Jerusalem. If God sees fit, I will be back in Jerusalem and I can worship in his presence again. For now, I'm going to the wilderness. And he goes off across the Jordan and he's in the wilderness of Judah. The whole nation is against him. Absalom's led a rebellion. Just a few close allies are with him. And this is the context when he writes this song. He's in the wilderness of Judah, in a dry and weary land. But notice what happens in verse 2. He's in a dry and weary land, but very quickly, 
He's transported to the sanctuary. And notice why this happens. He has the whole nation against him. He's in the wilderness, a dry and weary land. And he cries out to God. And he doesn't say, my soul thirsts for water or nourishment. He says, my soul thirsts for you. He doesn't say, my soul thirsts for the comforts of the palace. He says, my soul thirsts for you. He doesn't even say, my soul thirsts for the blood of my enemies, for justice. No, my soul thirsts for you. And very quickly, this song of lament turns into a song of rejoicing, a song of comfort, a song of trust. He cries out, O God, my God, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And that singular focus, this time of prayer where he has the only thing before David's eyes is God himself. He's not concerned about his circumstances. doesn't mean he's ignoring his circumstances or he's somehow unaware of them. But his focus is on God himself. He thirsts for God. His soul faints for God. And in that time of prayer, he's transported to the tabernacle. Verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And as he's praying that prayer, he's beholding God. He's remembering God in the sanctuary. He's remembering God's power, God's glory. In that moment, the wilderness becomes the sanctuary. David becomes aware of the fact that, yes, the ark was left in Jerusalem. The ark was left in the sanctuary there. But God's presence hasn't left him. And in a sense, because God is with him, he's in the sanctuary. And it only takes one verse. He's crying out to God. His focus is on God. There's an intense moment of prayer. And immediately he's caught up. And he's in the sanctuary. He's beholding God's power and his glory. And as he's beholding God's power and God's glory... There's one particular attribute of God, one particular characteristic that immediately comes to mind, his steadfast love. His steadfast love. There's a Hebrew word for this. It's, it's hesed. Hesed. Steadfast love. This is a word that appears all over the Old Testament. It's a word that's repeated again and again in the Psalms. The Psalms frequently celebrate God's steadfast love is hesed. It's often translated different ways. Sometimes it's translated compassion. Sometimes it's translated mercy. I think the King James usually translates it loving kindness. Now, loving kindness has a bit of a sentimental feel to it. That doesn't quite capture hesed. Steadfast love is better. Hesed is steadfast love. This, this is a love which is a loyal love, a persevering love, a faithful love, a committed love. It's the word that's used in the Bible for covenant love. This is the love that God has for his people. It's hesed. It's a steadfast love. It's a covenant love. God is loyal to his covenant. He will not break his covenant with his people. This is hesed. And this is what David meditates upon when, he, when he's in God's presence, when he imagines himself in the sanctuary, where he remembers beholding God's glory and his power, Immediately, God's hesed comes to mind. Faithful, loyal, covenant love. This is the love between a husband and wife. Marriage is a covenant. The love that we have uh, for our wives, for our husbands, it's not sentimental love. It's not loving kindness. That's good. Be loving and kind with your husband or your wife. But the love of marriage is hesed. Faithful, covenant love. 
God's faithful covenant love to Israel is demonstrated most powerfully, and I think David has this in mind, and David himself has experienced this, in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 26 to 31, this is the, the, the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. Moses is gone for a long time, up the mountain, receiving all of these instructions. The people in Israel become impatient at the base of Mount Sinai. They say to Aaron, let's build ourselves a calf. And we'll worship that calf, and we'll say this calf represents Yahweh who brought us out of Israel, or out of Egypt. So they do so. Aaron goes along with it. Moses comes down the mountain to discover what Israel has done. It's idolatry. They've already received in Exodus chapter 20 the Ten Commandments. They know that they're not supposed to make a graven image to represent God. This is precisely what they've done. It's very interesting, actually, that we're told, this is a little detail in the text, but we're told that the gold for the golden calf was gathered up from people's earrings. Earrings. We hear God. We hear God. We learn about God from his word and we hear his word. God says, don't try and picture me. Don't make images of me. Listen to me. But what does Israel do? It takes something intended for the ears and makes it into a visual image and worships that instead. God says, don't make a graven image. They do. This is idolatry. And Israel is guilty of the second commandment. It's idolatrous. And notice that throughout the Old Testament, idolatry, Israel's idolatry, is often used... Uh, a metaphor, the metaphor of adultery is often used for idolatry. When Israel commits adultery, uh, idolatry, it's committing adultery. It's worshiping another god, but it's in covenant relationship with God. So this is the moment of Israel's idol, uh, adultery. David has also committed adultery. He knows. He can relate to Israel here. Now God comes uh, down the mountain with Moses. When Moses discovers what happens, God tells Moses to destroy Israel. They're done. He tells them to, to be destroyed. There's a very uh, interesting image for Israel's adultery, idolatry, in Psalm 78, which recounts the Exodus. Psalm 78, verse 56 says this, Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. They broke the law there. But turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. This is the image of sinful Israel. It's a twisted bow. I don't know if anybody here is into archery. I'm not, so I can't testify to this. But if you have a, a bow made of wood, it has to be perfect wood. It has to be straight. If it's twisted, when the archer takes the arrow and puts it against the bow and pulls it back, if there's a flaw in the grain of the wood of the bow, if, if it's twisted, the archer is never going to hit the target. It's a deceitful bow. It doesn't hit the target. This is Israel. Israel is a twisted bow, a deceitful bow. When the arrow is fired, it misses the target. It's a picture for sin. We miss the target again and again. We're deceitful bows. David was a deceitful bow. He knew this. But how does God respond? Moses intercedes on Israel's behalf. He pleads for mercy. Just as David pleaded for mercy before God. And God shows mercy on Israel. He doesn't destroy Israel. And then David asks, or Moses asks that he can see God's glory. Exodus 33, and God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34. Listen to the description of this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding in hesed, 
Israel knows God as a God of steadfast love. Israel knows God as a God of hesed. David knew God as a God of steadfast love. David knew God as a God of hesed. And there's an interesting metaphor that the Bible uses here to describe God's hesed for his people, God's steadfast love for his people. And you'll be surprised by this, but it's actually the stork, the bird. When the, when the Israelites were looking around and uh, naming things, they named the stork Hasidah. Sounds like Hesed. They gave the stork the name Hasidah. And the reason they gave that stork that name is because they observed the behavior of the stork and they thought this is a fitting name for this bird. And Job picks this up. He compares the stork to other birds. Listen to this, Job 36, verses 13 to 16. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork, the Hasidah. The ostrich lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that a wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. Now, when Israel was naming the stork, it named it Hasidah Hesed. Because the way the stork behaves reminded them of the way God behaves. God's not like an ostrich. God doesn't just leave us there in the sand and, well, whatever happens, happens. He's like a stork. Well, what's a stork like? Storks are monogamous birds. They have one partner and they stay with that partner for life. And they build a nest and they keep that nest. Now, in your spare time, don't do it now on your iPhones. I know it's a temptation. Go to Google Images and look up a stork's nest. They are massive, and they're way up high. Storks always build their nests as high as they can, and they're huge. uh, We've discovered storks' nests that are six feet wide and nine feet deep. These things are fortresses. God is like a stork. He puts his young in a fortress way up high where it's safe. And David realizes this when he's in the wilderness and it looks as though he's done for and all of his enemies are against him. The whole nation has turned against him. His own son has rebelled against him. What does he say? I find myself under the refuge of your wings. The darkness, this is at night that he's praying this song. The darkness he realizes is actually just the shadow of God's presence, the shadow of the wings that are over him. God is not like the ostrich. He's like the stork. Israel knew this. Israel again and again celebrates God's steadfast love. In fact, this may be one of the reasons why we even have the Psalter to begin with. It's because of God's steadfast love that we have the Psalms to begin with. And the reason I, I say this is because if you read now in Chronicles, First Chronicles 16, when the Ark of God is brought up to Jerusalem, David goes before it. He's leading Israel in songs of praise. David writes his own song of praise and blessing on that occasion. That song ends this way, First Chronicles 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love, his hesed, endures forever. And then David, at the end of chapter 16, First Chronicles, appoints priests for a particular task. Now, we think of the priests in, in the Old Testament in Israel. They perform the sacrifices and do things like that in the temple. But here David appoints a certain order of priests, and they've got one task. Listen to this. It's First Chronicles 16, verses 41 and 42. He's talking about all of those who are singing the priests that he appointed, and he says this, With them were Heman 
and Jeduthun, and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord. Set apart for one purpose, to give thanks to the Lord, and then we get the reason. For his steadfast love endures forever. Haman and Jeduthun had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song. David writes psalms as songs to be sung. And he sets apart a whole order of priests to sing them again and again. And the psalms eventually are collected and they become the songbook of Israel. And these priests in the temple sing God's praises. And the thing that is celebrated again and again is God's hesed, his steadfast love and faithfulness. And notice this is precisely what David is doing here. Because your steadfast love is better than life, Psalm 63, my lips will praise you. My lips will sing to you. I will bless you all as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. This, this prayer of lament very quickly turns into a song of praise, and it's because of God's steadfast love. Now notice what we read in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich foods. The psalm begins, My soul, cry, I cry out. My soul faints. I cry out for water. In verse 5, we have the answer. David knows my soul will be satisfied, and not just with water, not just enough to get by, but fat and rich foods. Fat and rich foods. I think uh, rich there is actually a Hebrew word for the marrow. The fat and the marrow. This is what David will be satisfied with. Not just a drink of water. And if you went to the temple in Israel, you would hear singing. You would hear these songs of praise celebrating God's steadfast love. But you would also smell something. It's the huge brazen altar, which I don't mean to sound glibly, is a barbecue. A huge barbecue in the temple there. And there are sacrifices being offered continuously. There is meat burning on the altar, and if you went to the temple, you would smell barbecue. And we're told there that all the fat had to be burned up. Some of the priests got to eat some of the meat. They, that was part of their sustenance. But the fat had to be wholly burned up to the Lord as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. All the fat had to be burned. What does David say here? I will be satisfied with the fat. I will be satisfied with, with the marrow. Let's not just skip over this. The best part, the tastiest part, the part that belongs to God, David says, I will get a taste of that. He says in another psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. David is promised part of the Lord's portion. Part of the, the blessing, the blessed, tasty, fragrant fat is given to David. Another sign of God's grace. Another sign of God's mercy. I remember recently we have a very good butcher down the road and sometimes we have people over for barbecue and I like to barbecue a nice steak. And a good steak is always a marble steak and it always has a nice strip of fat on the one side. It means it's going to be juicy. And I, I don't eat the fat, but I always eat a little bit of the fat. And my little boy who was three years old the other day. I gave him a little taste of that fat and he just thought this was the best and he kept asking for more fat. And of course, I gave him a little bit more fat. And this is what God does to us. He gives us a little bit of the fat. He gives us a bit of his portion, the sweet-smelling aroma, the fat and the marrow. David cries out at the beginning of the psalm, my soul longs for you, it thirsts for you. Halfway through the psalm, he can say, I will be satisfied with not just water, but fat and rich foods. 
Then David goes on in verses 6 and 7 to say this, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadows of your wings I will sing for joy. Notice what he's doing as he prays there. It's a very important verb. He's remembering. When I remember you, he's able to sing songs of praise and sing with joy because he's remembering God and he's meditating on God in the watches of the night. It's late at night. It's dark. Remember, his focus is on God. He's thinking only of God. He's not concerned about what's going on around him. And he can't sleep. It's the watches of the night. But he can't sleep because he's anxious. He can't sleep because he's worried about one of Absalom's assassins coming in and killing him. He can't sleep because he's remembering God upon his bed and meditating upon God. He's so caught up in the vision of God that he has that he stays awake. And he realizes that the darkness of the night is actually the shadow of God's wings. He knows that he's under God's protective care and he sings for joy. Now, this is a psalm of David, but I think here, this is one of the ways in which this psalm teaches us. We, too, need to remember, as David remembered. As you're going to sleep at night, it's a good practice. Remember. Meditate upon God. One of the great hymn writers of the church, John Newton, made a practice of this, remembering. And when he remembered, he remembered God's steadfast love in his own life, as he had experienced it. It's very important as we read through the Psalms, don't read through the Psalms vicariously. Don't pray the Psalms secondhand. Okay, this is a Psalm of David. This happened to him. Pray the Psalms firsthand. They're your prayers. When you're remembering God's steadfast love and faithfulness as David did, David says, you have been my help. For you have been my help. He doesn't say, For you were the help of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though God was. He doesn't say you were the help of uh, Gideon, of Joshua, those saints that have gone before him, of Samuel. No, he says you have been my help. He remembers and meditates on what God has done in his own life. And we too ought to do the same. And John Newton, one of the famous hymn writers, made a practice of this. This was part of his spiritual discipline, was remembering and he would think of, uh, think of God's faithfulness and goodness to him. And he, he called these Ebenezers. These are, thus far, the Lord has been my help. A stone, pile of stones. He would mark out his life with these Ebenezers. These moments where he knew he, where God intervened in a miraculous way in his life. These moments of God's, uh, the outpouring of God's mercy and grace. And he made a practice of this. Every Saturday night before worship, he would spend time remembering. Thinking back over the week that had gone before thinking of the times where God had been his help. Every Saturday evening, once a month, at the time the Anglican Church celebrated communion once a month, on the evening before the Lord's Supper, he would do the same as he had always done. He would look back on the week that had just preceded and remember that God had been his help. But then he would meditate specifically on the cross and on the atonement. And of course, this is the moment where God's steadfast love, where his hesed, is most clearly manifest and demonstrated. Paul says as much, Romans 5, God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This morning I was preaching on Psalm 75. There's a very uh, powerful and fearful image there of, of the cup of God's wrath pouring out on the wicked. 
and they're made to drink it down to the last drop. And one of the things I was saying was that Jesus, as he approaches the cross, remember what he prays in Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. And then Peter interferes, and he, he tries to ward off the soldiers that come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, it's in John's gospel, he says, Peter, put away your sword. Am I, am I, have I not been called to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now that cup that Jesus has been called and sent to drink is the cup of God's wrath that is poured out and he drinks it down to the last drop. And he offers us instead the cup of blessing, the cup of salvation. And I was making the point this morning, today Christ stands before us and he offers us the cup of blessing, the cup of salvation. But we know from the book of Revelation, we know from the creed that we sang, uh, that we read this morning, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The book of Revelation tells us that on that last day, the cup of blessing will be removed and Christ will pour out the cup of his wrath. But we stand here today because the cup of wrath passed over us because it didn't pass over Christ. Christ didn't pass the cup. He drank it down to the last drop. And God's wrath and judgment on sin was laid upon him so that we can now experience his mercy and grace, just as David experienced. So when you're remembering God's help, think of your own life, but always meditate upon the cross. Newton made a practice of remembering, just as David made a practice of remembering. This is why Newton could write in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me, his words my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be, as long as life endures. Newton could write that hymn because he continually meditated upon God's goodness to him. He remembered, God is my help. And then notice what David then goes on to say. Verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. It's a very important word that we have here in the Hebrew for cling. My soul clings to you. It's the same word that appears in Genesis chapter 2. Remember, this is about marriage, Adam and Eve. God says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, same word, will cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now Paul says in Ephesians 5, that verse is actually about Christ and the church. Christ is the man. Christ is the bridegroom who clings to his bride, who clings to us. This is why David says, your right hand upholds me. And this is the key thing. It's not the case that it all depends on us clinging to Christ. If it did, we, were not strong, we wouldn't be strong enough to hold on. The key is, Christ is, is the, the bridegroom. He clings to us. And David knew this. David knew that God's right hand upheld him. And because of that, because he rested in the assurance of that, he could say, and I cling to you. But it's almost as if uh, you, you can picture a newborn ba- a baby in the hands of his father, and the baby's clinging on to his dad's finger or thumb. Now, the baby's not going to fall if he lets go of the thumb. The father's clinging to him. That's the key thing. Even so, the baby responds in love, responds in uh, recognizing who his dad is, and, and clings. And we're called to do the same thing, to cling to God. Now, this isn't just a kind of a vague feeling of assurance, this clinging. 
The word appears in other contexts, and it has to do with obedience, actually. This is how we cling to God, by obeying. Deuteronomy gives us, uh, uses this word cling quite a bit, but I think a good passage, a good representative passage of this is Deuteronomy 13, verse 4. It says this, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and cling to him. Now Moses is just trying to say the same thing in different ways here. Walking after him, fearing him, keeping his commandments, obeying his voice. You shall serve him, you shall cling to him. We cling to God by obeying his commandments, by serving him. That's how we cling to God. And David knew as someone that had experienced his blessing, as someone that was upheld by his hand, this is how I respond to God. I cling to him. And another word for this is hesed. It's our loyal love to God, our faithfulness to God. God pours out his hesed upon us, and we respond with hesed. God's steadfast love and our steadfast love returned back to him. That's clinging. That's how we cling to God. David knew God's hesed. David knew God was clinging to him, and he responded with his own hesed. He responded by clinging to God. Now, when we read through the psalm, the psalm itself looks forward to a time when God would judge David's enemies. David was confident that he would be delivered from this moment, and he is. We can read through the historical narrative. Absalom's rebellion fails. David is restored to the throne. And it's very interesting what we read in the subsequent chapters, 2 Samuel 19 and 20. This is David's return to the throne. And something very important happens as he's going back to Jerusalem. As he was leaving Jerusalem, there were many who betrayed him. There were many who were scoffing at him and jeering at him. On the way back, he meets these same people. The same people that had scoffed at him and jeered at him and betrayed him. And what does he do? He forgives them. He pardons them. He had experienced God's grace and mercy, his steadfast love, and he demonstrates that same mercy and steadfast love to his enemies as he goes back to Jerusalem. And the men of Judah are restored and they rally around David. They had rebelled against him. David pardons them and shows mercy. And they rally around him. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 20 that the men of Judah clung to their king from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And this is significant because right away, David again is uh, facing political turmoil. The northern kingdoms rebel, the the ten tribes. But the men of Judah the men of the tribe of Judah, whom he showed mercy upon. They cling to him. They cling to him. He was a man that clung to God. He demonstrated God's steadfast love and mercy, and others clung to him. And I think this is a picture of who we all ought to be as Christians. We are those who have received God's steadfast love. We are those that respond in obedience and faith. We cling to God because we know he's clinging to us. And as those who model and demonstrate in our lives this very steadfast love, this clinging to God, others turn to us and cling to us. That should be how how we're received. Now, I know that just as David was received with jeering and persecution, that is sometimes the response too. But Christians are called to be those that demonstrate such trust and faith and mercy in God and reveal and magnify God's love and mercy and faithfulness that others can have confidence in us. You should be at your workplace the most trustworthy person. You should be. 
You should be known for that. People should trust in you, should cling to you, just as they clung to David. There's, uh, in the 17th century, there was a little book, I conclude with this, there was a little book written by John Geary, I think he was an Anglican minister, and it was a series of character sketches. This was a popular thing to do in the 17th century, right? Little character sketches. So there's about 100 of them in this book. And they're just little three or four page descriptions of different people. And one of his character sketches is a character sketch of an old English Puritan or nonconformist, it's called. You can read through there. If you're interested in this, I can send you a copy. But it's just about a three or four page description of a Puritan from the 17th century. I have to say, reading through that, it's something that just gets me really charged up and pumped up. And I read it to my students at Tyndale, and Tyndale is not really a place where the Puritans are celebrated. But I read this to them, and I expound it and explain it, and I say, who wants to be a Puritan like this? And everyone's like, yeah, let's be Puritans. And I love how this ends. It ends on the same note as the psalm, those clinging to David. Listen to how this description of the Puritan ends. This is how I end. He was immovable in all times, so that they who in the midst of many opinions have lost the view of true religion may return to him and find it. Let me read that again. The Puritan, the Christian, the Christian man or woman is someone who is immovable in all times, so that they who in the midst of many opinions, and think about our Canadian society today, in the midst of many opinions, have lost the view of true religion. And that's true. People have lost sight of the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. But in the midst of these many opinions, the Christian man and woman is immovable at all times. And those who are lost in the swirl of opinions may return to him, may return to her, and find it. Find the truth. Find God's trustworthiness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his word lived out, proclaimed, demonstrated in the life of the Christian. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this psalm to us. We thank you for the faithfulness of your servant David, who trusted in you in the midst of trials. Many of us have come here today to gather with your people, to gather under your wings, we're also experiencing different trials, different testings. We thank you that in the Gospels, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, in the form of a bird. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you descend upon us, that you protect us, that you have gathered us under your wings. We thank you, Son of God, Lord Jesus Christ, that you drank the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop so that it might pass over us. And instead, you offer us the cup of blessing, the cup of salvation. May we be those who are nourished from that cup, who drink deeply. You say, whoever is thirsty, come to me and I will give you drink. Lord Jesus, we come to you now. We ask for drink, that you would revive us, that you would refresh us, that you would strengthen our faith so that we may be those who are immovable, who are trustworthy, who demonstrate God's 
Hesed. And in our clinging to God, we ask that others would look to us and cling to us, and in clinging to us would find that they too rest in the mighty upheld hand of you, our Heavenly Father. We ask all these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.